This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Tuesday, June 21st. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Is it the first day of summer today? I always forget. It's in and around now. The 20th or the... No, it's the 20th. What am I... I I've got the day wrong, so just don't even listen to me at all. It's June 20th. It still could be the start of summer. I don't know. Uh, the weather is nice where I am, but I just saw that uh, Jasper had like a dumping of snow the other day, which I guess is par for the course if you live in that part of Alberta. But uh, that is the one thing. I love everything about Alberta. I would live in Alberta in a heartbeat. I used to work in Alberta. That's the one thing that I don't necessarily get on board with. It's the whole snow in June. So if we could like global warming ourselves out of that problem, it would be the absolutely perfect province. But uh, nevertheless, we're not here to talk about the weather, at least not, uh, not always. I do want to talk in a little bit with former finance Minister Joe Oliver about this uh, kerfuffle. It's a little bit more than a kerfuffle, perhaps a din and a do. I don't know. This uh, controversy involving the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, a Canadian comms guy on that bank, uh, resigned last week, triggering a whole uh, withdrawal of Canada, or at least a temporary freezing of Canada and its involvement in this Beijing-headquartered bank, which has long been criticized as being a financial tool of the Chinese Politburo. And now, finally, it seems Canada has decided to recognize this. So we'll talk to Joe Oliver about that very shortly in the program. I, I want to begin by doing something which is in some ways against my better judgment, but I, I still feel is important here. I don't like the ins and outs. I, I never cover polls on this show, because I find polls to be just the utterly uninteresting thing that you can talk about in politics that are also pretty inconsequential. I mean, sometimes you may get a peripheral insight about politics from a poll, but they tell you nothing. And even though it's an overused slogan, the only poll that matters is the one on election day, is kind of true. So yesterday, we did have an election day poll. Four to be specific and four ridings across the country. One of them in Ontario, not far from me. Oxford, one of them, well, two of them actually in Manitoba. One is Portage-Lisker, the other Winnipeg South Centre, and then another in Montreal. Now, the top line news of this is that there is zero change whatsoever. Any party who held the seat going into the by-election holds the seat now. But that doesn't mean there isn't a little bit that maybe you should take away from a couple of the ridings. In particular, the two that the Conservatives won, Portage-Lisker and Oxford. Now, Oxford is a bit, both of these ridings have been on my radar because I've covered them and some of the fights within them on this show. Oxford, just by way of catching you up, was the riding in which the Conservatives did not allow Garrett Van Dorland, a, a prominent social conservative activist and organizer, to run. Instead, they uh, seemed to prefer Arpan Canna, and while well, they didn't appoint him, he was the winner of the nomination once Van Dorland was out of the way. But this 
raise the ire of Dave McKenzie, who had this riding for, I think, 15, uh, 17, 18 years. He had the riding for quite a while. And uh, Dave McKenzie wanted his daughter to be the MP. He wanted his daughter, Deb Tate, to be his successor. She was running for the nomination. Uh, and he was just uh, all pissy and, and, and ended up endorsing the Liberals. So uh, you had the former Conservative MP knocking on doors with the Liberals, knocking on doors, uh, talking to Christian Freeland at the door. You had Dave McKenzie running radio ads when I was driving around. I live in London, which is not Woodstock or Oxford County. And I was, they were just blasting these ads into London as well. And I was hearing, oh, I'm the former Conservative MP, but I'm standing up for the Liberals, yada, yada, yada. So it was a riding. And there was one poll that came out uh, last week or earlier this week, whatever it was. And that poll had a dead tie between the Conservatives and the Liberals. And I, I didn't believe it, but it was one to watch. Anyway. The Conservatives still won the riding. Art Bancana, who I actually worked with in Ottawa uh, many, many years ago, ended up winning the riding with 43%. Uh, he had uh, about, what is it, I don't know, 26, 2700 vote lead uh, over the Liberals, which is, again, a win is a win, and I don't want to start getting into this whole, like, well, maybe a win is a loss, and maybe a loss is a win, and maybe a win is a win, but it's kind of a loss, like all that sort of stuff, because, yeah, all you need to win is one more vote than the other guy in elections or the other gal, so to speak. But the one thing I, I will say is worth noting here is that this is not the best showing for the Conservatives. And the 2021 election, Dave McKenzie had 47%, the Liberals had 20%. The 2019 election, Dave McKenzie had 48%. The NDP actually came second with 20%, uh, 48 to 20 and in 2015, again, Dave McKenzie, 45, and the Liberals in th uh, second place at 32%. So uh, this is a commanding result for the Liberals, even if it is still a loss. And uh, do we take from that that Dave McKenzie was just so eager to uh, support the Liberals that uh, a bunch of conservatives voted Liberal? Maybe, maybe not. You never know. But I do think that there might be a bit of a caution in this to the Conservative Party, which is that when you attract the wrong kind of attention to a riding, sometimes these results are going to happen. And I, I thought Garrett Van Dorland would have made a good candidate. I have nothing against Arpan Canna. I think he was a, a fine candidate. And I know from having been a candidate who was appointed in the past, I, I've talked about this, my own experience in 2018, it is tremendously unfair to everyone, including the person who is the appointed candidate. Now, again, Arpan was not appointed, so that's not the issue. But I'm saying that when the party starts mucking around in nominations and decides who's running and who's not, beyond really brazen disqualifying things, the person who's the beneficiary of this, either directly or indirectly, all of a sudden has an albatross that they have to carry. And, and so this is, again, a caution for the Conservative Party of Canada in that. But Portage Lisker, let's talk about that, because this was the one that I ended up having to wade into last week when uh, Maxime Bernier decided that uh, Andrew Lawton and True North were uh, big old sellouts and all that. Uh, and I don't want to rehash the whole WEF Portage Lisker controversy. You can listen to last week's shows if you want to get caught up on that. But uh, the big question here was, is the PPC 
alive or is the PPC dead? That was the question heading into this because in the 2021 election, the People's Party of Canada had its strongest showing nationally in this riding. And in 2021, Maxime Bernier wasn't the candidate, but the PPC got 21.58%, which was a significant dent to Candace Bergen, the Conservative candidate, who is used to like pulling in 70% like she did in 2019, but in 2021 got 52%. Now, again, you're still winning with more than half of the voters, but this signaled a pretty big issue for the Conservatives if the PPC numbers kept up. So, if you do the big drum roll here, the PPC ended up pulling in 17.2% yesterday. Now, that is with Maxime Bernier, the leader of the party, standing as the candidate. That is with an aggressive campaign, a well-known guy. And it is, again, I think a bit of a caution. Now, look, if the PPC were to pull in 17.2% nationally, it would be a tremendous achievement. But in the riding that they were trumpeting as their strongest, it is not exactly great. And by the way, I talked to Maxime Bernier about this in my first interview with him about this race, and I gave him a bit of an out. I said, what to you is a win? This was that clip. So we were discussing earlier, Maxime, the PPC did very well in, in Portage-Lisker relative to uh, everywhere else in the country. It was the strongest riding. And I, I know you obviously want to win. Uh, but but as far as the bigger picture here, what do you consider a, a win short of a, a victory on the ballot? I mean, do you feel that you need to get that 20% of the vote to prove that the PPC is still the force it was in 2021? <laughs> I like your question, Andrew. A win is a win. So a win for me will be to be the MP for people in Portage Lis Guard. And I'm here campaigning full time for them. Uh, my schedule is full and I'm very pleased with that. So for me, a win is to be their MP the night of the election. And I believe that it's doable. We have a strong team and, and people understand they have the opportunity to send a message to Ottawa right now. And you know, it's not about splitting the vote. That ridiculous uh, uh, argument is not valid. We won't change the government. The Trudeau government will be there after the election. So it's safe for them to vote for the PPC to vote for me. And actually, I will be their insurance policy that Polyev, if, <laughs> if he has the courage to be a conservative, I will, I will support him. But I will bring that debate in Ottawa, and I will support Polyev when or if he is a real conservative with real conservative family values. So it's a win-win for people in this riding, and they understand that. That's why my answer to, to your question is a win is a win. Well, as you heard there, his answer was pretty clear. A win is a win. So in contrast, this is a loss. Now, uh, how the party is going to spin this in the days and weeks to come, I don't know. But the big question was, you know, does Pierre Polyev have a PPC problem on his hands? I don't think he does based on these results. Now, obviously, the PPC could rebuild and they could have a great showing and maybe next election they'll find some other riding like Portage-Lisker where they have some uh, strangely uh, uncharacteristic and, and positive response. And you know, I, I know that because of this fight that ended up emerging last week, people think that I, I have it out for the PPC, and that, that's actually in no way true. And there have been many cases where I've said, you know, if the PPC were to be elected to something, 
it would be a pretty significant accountability measure for the conservatives. Because remember, the PPC only exists as a protest party. It is a party that was created because in Bernier's eyes, the conservatives were morally and intellectually corrupt, which means that under ideal circumstances, the moral and intellectual corruption that is purported to be in the Conservative Party of Canada would be fixed and everyone could be united again. It was the Reform Party that fixed the Progressive Conservative Party. It was the Wild Rose Alliance that fixed the Alberta PCs. These uh, fractures and reunitings, if I can use that word, can be tremendously powerful if a party has lost its way. And the problem, though, is that the PPC right now, to a lot of its supporters, by no means all, but to a lot of its supporters, is perpetually and indefinitely positioned on the outside of the mainstream, whatever the mainstream is. And trust me, I understand why you might want nothing to do with the mainstream of what passes for a mainstream today. That is not a judgment on my part. I'm saying that there seem to be a lot of PPC folks I talk to that relish being on the outside and never quite want to be on the inside. And that's going to be, I think, the big challenge. I know for a fact that there are a lot of people that are really diehard PPC supporters that are Maxime Bernier bust, and that's fine. That's your prerogative. But I know there were, in 2021, a lot of soft PPC supporters that said, well, I would vote conservative if Leslin Lewis were the leader, or I would vote conservative if Pierre Polyev were the leader. Well, you fast forward, and Pierre Polyev is the leader. And a lot of those people, the PPC, I think, is having trouble keeping on to us voters. And uh, again, by-elections can be weird and they can be anomalous and you never want to extrapolate too much from these things, but it is a cautionary tale on all fronts. I think there's a caution against the conservatives in Oxford County of what happens when nominations attract the wrong type of attention. And I think in Portage Lisker, there is a caution against the PPC that uh, maybe they are not going to coast in as strongly as they did last time and have the upward trajectory that they did last time, which was inconsequential and, and undeniable in the 2021 election. But a little backward looking into 2021 is, I think, important here because Aaron O'Toole has finally surrendered his seat in Parliament. I say finally, not uh, like I'm glad to see him go, but I just because he announced it a little while ago and now he's formally ended this and he has given his farewell speech in the House of Commons and had some parting words about conservatism that he shared on CTV. You know, the Conservatives won the popular vote in the last two elections. It just wasn't efficient enough. And Mr. Trudeau, some of the polarization is actually focusing and over-delivering your small cohort. So he's now won two minority governments with a smaller popular vote and in some elections being virtually shut out in certain provinces of the country. So I think uh, had the pandemic not been a part of the discussion, I had a lot of fiscal Conservatives that wanted to see uh, the Conservatives with a smart plan on the environment. A lot of business leaders, for example, or small business owners that wanted to make sure they lowered emissions for their kids, but were worried about our competitiveness, worried about trade relations, thought Mr. Trudeau's ethics were questionable. So there's a bunch of voters that want to see the Conservatives address all issues. I think Pierre will do that. So 
Aaron O'Toole there, I, I believe, was characterized uncharitably in this CTV tweet that went around, and I shared it myself, in which uh, it says Aaron O'Toole tells Vashi Capellos he still believes the Conservative Party needs to moderate if it's going to win the next election. He didn't use those words, but he did make that implication when he talked about, oh, believing that they needed a smart plan on the environment. So he is still actually standing by his decision to introduce a carbon tax, despite it being probably the most singularly unpopular issue within the conservative base because it angers the uh, red Tories even who like the only thing you can kind of get them on is fiscal conservatism. It angers the blue Tories. It angers the social conservatives because, you know, who likes a carbon tax regardless of uh, anything else. Uh, so Aaron O'Toole uh, is still standing by that and, and still kind of claiming that, well, you know, the conservatives would win the election if they had a plan on the environment. Well, you did that. You did that. We listened. And, and I sort of cheekily said in response to the tweet here that, oh, if only we had some way of knowing what would happen if Aaron O'Toole's vision of the Conservative Party were to stand in an election. Hint, hint, we do. It was that vision that uh, tried to give everything to win Quebec and failed to do so, that tried to give everything to win the GTA and failed to do so, that tried to expand the base by moving ever closer to the center and even the left, and it did not work. And I, I said in an interview, uh, recently, I can't even remember who I was talking to, that while I didn't love how the Conservative Party went in that last election, I thought it was tremendously important that they did because now we have the test case. Now we have the definitive proof of what happens if the red Tory fantasy and the red Tory delusion is put in motion. You get a campaign that looks exactly like the one the conservatives ran in 2021 and you get a loss that looks exactly like the conservative loss in 2021. And don't give me the, oh, but they won the popular vote because that and five bucks doesn't even get you a latte at Starbucks. I had to like correct the metaphor midway through because I don't actually know what a latte costs at Starbucks now, but I'm assuming it's more than $5 because, you know, inflation kills anything and everything. Uh, that does it for us for now. I want to take a quick break. We'll be back talking about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank with the great Joe Oliver. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Last week, there was a, a bit of a geopolitical firestorm of sorts that started with the resignation of a Canadian gentleman by the name of Bob Picard from the AIIB. Now, this is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, a Beijing-based bank that's been around for seven years or so. And it might not surprise you if you followed anything to do with this institution in the past to hear what Bob said in his 
parting words after resigning. He tweeted that he has tendered his resignation as a patriotic Canadian. This was my only course. The bank is dominated by Communist Party members and also has one of the most toxic cultures imaginable. I don't believe that my country's interests are served by its AIIB membership. He later added to that by saying that the Communist Party hacks hold the cards at the bank. They deal with some board members as useful idiots. He believes that Canada should not be a member of this PRC, that's the People's Republic of China instrument. The reality of power in the bank is that it's CCP from start to finish. Now, he's been there for about a year. There are other uh, supposedly esteemed individuals, former Treasury secretaries that sit in this organization. But now Canada has, in the in light of this, decided to put a freeze on its contributions to the AIIB and have a review, which the bank, of course, says it has nothing to hide. There's nothing to see here. We'll totally cooperate. You won't find any uh, Chinese communist institution officials in this. I, I'm less convinced. I want to talk to uh, former finance minister Joe Oliver about this. Now, obviously, this was not a an institution that existed in the time that you were in government and that Stephen Harper was there. It, it came in 2016. But I'm guessing for you, this is not something that is all that surprising to see these allegations. Well, no, not really, because we knew, of course, the, uh, the Asian infrastructure investment bank uh, would be dominated by the Chinese. Um, we had an opportunity to join in 2015 when I was a minister of finance and, and we declined. And I looked at the um, opportunity, let's call it that, and concluded that really there was no interest in Canada joining. There was quite a significant cost. It wasn't precisely defined, but it looked like it was going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And I didn't really see an upside. I mean, for one thing, uh, our big pension funds would, of course, be welcome uh, to participate in an infrastructure project if they wanted to, because they had uh, billions of dollars uh, to invest. And as far as Canadian construction companies and others who might be involved, um, on a sort of a, a pay-to-play kind of a basis, the history was not very good in terms of uh, Canada's ability to participate. There, we we in fact participated in the previous ten years about in about one percent of of total projects. So I really didn't see the upside other than a real kind of a, a feel-good photo op which in fact happened uh, three years later when, um, when then Finance Minister uh, Bill Morneau announced to the public that uh, Canada, amongst great fanfare, and the Prime Minister was involved in the, the Photoshop as well, obviously, because they had a very um, friendly attitude to, to, to China, uh, that they were going to uh, join. And they never really discussed what the cost would be. If you look at the... Um, at the annual report of the AIIB, you see that Canada has a subscription of close to a billion dollars. and But that doesn't mean we, we paid that full amount in, but we've been paying, I, I gather, about 40 million a year. We're, we're moving towards uh, $200 million, which isn't uh, pocket change, uh, in, in my opinion. And as far as I can determine, we've got precisely nothing out of it. In the meantime, of course, our relationship with China has deteriorated for, uh, for a variety of reasons that Canadians are, are well aware of. 
Just going back to 2015 there, when you and, and the Canadian government decided not to get involved in this, was that purely a financial decision or was there a concern that this would become an instrument of the Chinese Politburo? Well, we we assumed that, of course, it, it would be because uh, everything uh, major uh, that, that China is involved in commercially uh, has control by the by the party, and uh, we knew that at the time. Perhaps that wasn't widely understood, but it was it was uh, it was pretty obvious. Um, and as I recall, um, the Chinese didn't put pressure on us uh, to join. They they uh, they encouraged us to, but but uh, I didn't feel any any muscle in that regard. And on the other side of it, uh, the Americans who were quite critical of the British joining the AIB um, explicitly uh, told us, uh, Jack Lew, who was the Secretary of Treasury at the time, uh, told me that he wasn't really uh, asking us not to join, but uh, he just wanted us to be aware that there were concerns on their part in terms of, of governance, uh, procurement, corruption, uh, even environmental uh, issues about the, the types of projects they were, they were involved in. Um, now they, of course, the Americans viewed the AIB as a competitive institution uh, to, uh, to, to the World Bank and other, mm -hmm. and other uh, institutions that they were uh, supportive of. So they were clearly uh, un unhappy with that development. But as it turned out, um, Japan was the only other G7 country uh, aside from Canada that didn't join. Now, the one thing that I, I should say, just for those who don't follow this, China is launching and has been for several years this uh, incredibly costly Belt and Road Initiative, where they're basically, I, I think, entrapping a lot of developing countries. They're uh, building, you know, these brand new ship ports and airports in countries that never could have afforded these uh, things on their own without a lot of help. And, and a lot of that is being funneled directly through the AIIB. So, I mean, this is really a part of this, uh, you know, great Chinese economic conquest, this institution. Yeah, well, there's no question. It's all coordinated with, with a view to, uh, uh, to extending uh, China's uh, reach uh, internationally and, and have, have First, have countries uh, and institutions recognize that that Canada uh, that China has the second largest uh, uh, GDP, and uh, that it uh, you know it's it's very assertive and it, it's demanding respect, and more than that, uh, uh, dominance in in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And this is they're using their financial muscle uh, to increase their uh, their influence around the world, in particular with. Um, uh, with less developed countries where, you know, as you implied, uh, they're using uh, their financial instruments to, to get into projects that they wouldn't necessarily be welcome in. But, but if, if these, these projects uh, aren't able to return um, the, the interest rate that they're owed to, to the Chinese uh, government, uh, then of course, uh, China can, um, can seize the assets and, and get control of ports and airports and, and other major infrastructure projects that um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the country or the mm -hmm. borrower wouldn't otherwise um, sell to them. 
you looked at the dollars and cents in 2015, as we were talking about a moment ago, and you said you just don't see the uh, economic benefit here, among other issues. How did that change? I mean, obviously, with the new government comes new priorities. But when the Liberals came in and joined this, how did they make that value proposition? Because the numbers probably hadn't changed all that much between when Canada decided not to join and when Canada decided eventually to join. No, I don't think the, the numbers changed at all. And in fact, uh, the subsequent history proves definitively uh, that, that, we were, that we were right, that there was nothing in it, in it for us. But uh, if I may uh, be permitted a, a partisan comment, the, the, uh, the, the Liberals don't seem to uh, put high priority on, uh, on fiscal prudence. And uh, they're not, uh, they weren't particularly worried about, about the cost. Uh, maybe they viewed it as a development exercise. Uh, I think it was more, um, uh, you know, wanting to be um, in the room with the big boys and, and uh, cozying up uh, to China, uh, which they were, they were, you know, they're trying to do. And, and mm -hmm. of course, no, we know uh, the, the prime minister's personal history and his father's history in, in this regard. So I don't think they ever attempted to, um, to justify it on a cost-benefit perspective, for they were looking at the so-called you know, bigger picture of uh, you know participating in another multilateral organization and uh, you know being a, a big boy in international de de infrastructure development. But you know, let, let me just in that regard, I, I think there's another important point to make, and, and that is that you know our our willingness to to put you know hundreds of millions into the AIIB could have been better spent if in fact we were we, we were felt compelled to spend money in respect to domestic infrastructure mm -hmm. in our own country which which is sorely needed and would would help uh, with, uh, uh, with with improving a, in our productivity which is at a very uh, poor level in fact uh, the OECD said that uh, Canada is going to have a poor record of uh, GDP to per capita growth of any other wealthy country in the entire world. Well, infrastructure is part of that problem. So, you know, that money uh, could could better be spent in Canada. Now, you know, the, the money is 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 not available, of course, it wasn't available. So it's it's a it represents additional borrowing. Uh, by by the government of Canada, um, and needless to say, uh, we borrowed a lot. Our, our debt is approaching 1.2 trillion, and uh, the the interest on the debt uh, will be, I think it's it's going to be up to uh, 50 billion dollars a year by 2027. By uh, and I think it's it's approximately 45 billion. It's it's over 4,000 dollars a year for a family of four. So adding more debt. Um, is 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 not a uh, an mm -hmm. attractive proposition, and it wasn't um, for us then. Yeah, and and you're right that there has there, there are times when maybe you can justify the the elective spending, and, and we have not been in in one of those periods for the last few years, certainly. And I I, I guess I'll, I'll ask about this in the broader context of of Canada's relations with China, because I know that the Conservative government has been uh, criticized for uh, the free trade agreement with China that, that Stephen Harper promoted. I think that was 2014. No, there I, was no, no, there was no free trade. Well, not that's, that's how it's been, how it's been criticized, but the, uh, the well, FIPA is what well, I'm referring trade. to. 
Yeah, but no, no, this is an important point. There's trade. Okay, no, and that's fair. And I, and I would, I would be imprecise as I set up the premise. So I'll let you characterize okay. it, but I'll, I'll just ask, sure. as you characterize that, do you have any regrets about that effort that uh, the conservatives made to really try to cement these ties with China? No, we've got to set the record straight there. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in favor of trade with China if it, if it uh, advanced our economic interests. I mean, after all, uh, given its size, uh, everybody's talking about kind of reducing our dependency on trade with the United States, uh, which represents 75% of our, our trade. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you don't turn your back on a, on a huge market. But I certainly wasn't in favor, and neither was the Prime Minister, which is more important, in favor of a free trade agreement with China uh, at that time or, or at, any time, uh, at any time since. It just didn't make sense. Now, I personally... But, but it was liberalizing trade with China. Yeah, but look, I, I went to China many times, and uh, I, I saw a strategic complementarity between Canada and China in this respect. We needed to diversify the markets for our oil and gas, and they needed to diversify their sources of supply. Being able to sell more oil and gas or any oil and gas uh, to China would have had enormous beneficial impact on Canada because of the hundreds of billions of dollars we could have earned. Also, you know, if we sold gas, uh, we would have uh, been able to reduce net global emissions uh, because that gas would be substituting for much higher emitting coal. So uh, there, there was an environmental advantage uh, to, to that as well. And, and, you know, I had an opportunity uh, once to actually discuss that issue with, with President Xi Jinping. Uh, interestingly, when, um, when the former Governor General David Johnson was, was in Beijing, uh, and, and he had arranged a, a meeting with, with the president, uh, and, and Xi Jinping agreed. Now, that wasn't going to change the world, but if anything, it might have somewhat reduced the asymmetry between, between our two countries, but it never would have reduced our, or increased our dependency on them, because, mm -hmm. you know, if you could, the tragedy was, of course, we couldn't deliver. Uh, but if we could have delivered, uh, we could have delivered to, to anyone in the, in the world. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a terrible economic cost that, that that's been, that hasn't happened. And, and I think we all know why. Uh, but um, it would have been, you know, that particular trade would have been advantageous uh, to Canada and in Canada's national interest. And that last part is key when we're talking about that and, and certainly the uh, AIIB. Uh, former Finance Minister Joe Oliver, always a pleasure, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Great to have you. That was Joe Oliver, former Minister of Finance in Canada. As soon as the word left my mouth, I knew that I had stepped in it because it wasn't a free trade deal. I meant to say, you know, freeing the trade, liberalizing, making it a bit easier. But I went for the shorthand and uh, Joe Oliver rightly called me on it. But nevertheless, very insightful guy. We'll have to have him back on more often. That does it for us for today. Remember, special edition of The Andrew Lawton Show tomorrow, a full-length sit-down with Tamara Leach. That's all coming up in in just uh, 23 hours here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.